Welcome to another PI World podcast. This is an audio-only version offered as another way to enjoy our great content. A full video version can be seen on piworld.co.uk where you can find many more videos of interest to investors. Welcome everybody, thank you for giving up your time. It's nearly 17 years actually since we started the business and floated on AIM. Uh, we may very well be the last UK-focused scale-quoted group in short order in the sector, uh, and we believe we've built a strong and quality business. Our investment case is, we believe, clear, sustainable and scalable. The scale benefits, I think, are quite evident in terms of the future will lie in large automotive retail groups with significant share of the UK market, even down to implementation of things like the new customer duty regulations or our response to cyber risk. Scale helps in many, many ways. The business is built on getting customers and keeping them both in terms of sales, but also then providing the higher margin after sales services. And we believe after sales is a real significant opportunity for the coming years. We are a low margin business. There's no getting away from that. And our cost optimization is absolutely critical. We're aided by an in-house software development team of over 50 people who make us nimble in taking cost out and increasing productivity. The board has focused very much on capital allocation, making the right decisions of what to invest in, restructuring our portfolios for maximum profitability and realizing cash on underperforming or surplus assets. This discipline allows us to have an attractive dividend and buyback approach. If we move to a snapshot of the results to the end of August, you can see the group continues to develop and mature 190 outlets, representing more manufacturer partners than anybody else in the UK, from Dacia all the way through to Ferrari. Revenues up 20%, a bulk of which came through acquisitions, profitability up to 31.5%, and that's clearly aided our ability to grow the dividend by over 21%. We have limited debt, limited gearing, and a very strong asset backing, as witnessed by 70.9 pence tangible assets per share. Our colleague satisfaction scores are excellent, great place to work score 83%, and this helps us deliver the customer experiences we need in order to retain customers with 84.4% net promoter score with regards to used cars. We have to remember that for all the tech prowess uh, this is fundamentally a people business with people selling to people and providing services to people, hopefully with a smile. So I'll pass over to Karen, who's going to go through the financial performance. Thank you, Robert. Uh, some key financial KPIs on this side where, as Robert has already mentioned, acquisitions contributed to growth in revenue to record levels. And whilst acquisitions are clearly a part of this overall increase, 8.1% revenue growth was delivered in the core group and that's largely the result of new vehicle sales volumes and rising vehicle prices. We've got relative stability of margins with these still in excess of pre-COVID levels and profitability we're very pleased with. And it's basically only peaked by the strong post-COVID FY22 profitability. Tangible net assets backed by our strong freehold and long leasehold property portfolio. I turn to the income statement. I've already highlighted that gross margins are relatively stable, but we are seeing some patterns. As new vehicle supply comes through, we're seeing a more normalized new vehicle margin beginning to appear. Um, profits per unit on used vehicles remain strong, and in the first half actually were higher than those achieved in the second half of last financial year. 
Vehicle prices have, however, remained high, and this has had a dampening effect on used margins. The group's also seen reduced margins from after sales because of technician salary actions. Operating expenses have been impacted, of course, by acquisitions, higher energy costs and vehicle costs. And I'll cover this in more detail shortly. But we're really pleased that actually operating expenses as a percentage of revenue has fallen. Net finance charges increased on the back of higher interest rates and increased levels of borrowing following the Helston acquisition last year. Manufacturer stocking charges are actually a key part of this year-on-year -year increase, with them also seeing rising rates and in some cases reduced free stocking periods, which impacted on costs. Turning to the profits grid, we're delighted that we increased gross profit in the core group by 11.9 million. And you can see here we did that through growth in new fleet and after sales gross profit with a decline in used vehicle gross profit generation due to reduced light for light volumes of used vehicles sold in the period. Rising interest rates has meant that the group has been unable to run its popular 0% finance events, which have historically provided good levels of volume, albeit at reduced margins. And we had those events in the comparative period, but clearly not this year. The group tightly controlled costs, and I'll come on to that on the next slide. And acquisitions completed after the 1st of March are excluded from the core profit, and you can see the strong contribution from those here. So I promised a slide on costs. Here it is. In the core group, we saw a 4% increase in operating expenses, and that obviously is clearly below the headline rate of inflation, despite a significant increase in energy costs. Energy costs were up over 100% and the group had a benefit of a lower value fixed electricity contract that came to an end in September 2022. Since then, the group's been executing on its energy strategy and we now have 35 dealerships with solar panels. We targeted originally to generate 10% of the group's electricity requirement from solar. And even though the project is not yet complete, we generated, as you can see, 9.5% of the group's electricity requirement in August. In terms of other cost areas, vehicle and valeting costs have increased largely on the back of increased vehicle prices, which has meant that the cost of depreciation or leasing for our corporate fleet has increased. Marketing costs, we generated a saving, aided, of course, by not having those 0% finance events, but also because we've been focused very strongly on high ROI activity, which has actually meant that we've delivered this saving in marketing cost whilst maintaining Bristol Street Motors as one of the highest ranking um, franchise dealership brands uh, by prompted brand awareness in England. The biggest cost of the group is clearly salaries. That we managed to restrict the rise to 1%, aided by a level of vacancies in the group, which Robert will touch upon shortly, but also because of reduced sales commissions, which kept costs low. Turning to the balance sheets, the group's pension scheme remains in surplus and fully funded, requires no cash contribution from the company. You can see in terms of tangible assets, the strong freehold and long leasehold property portfolio that underpins that tangible net assets per share that Robert's pointed out was 70.9 pence. And then the biggest asset outside of that is obviously vehicle inventory, where we've seen new car inventory funded by the manufacturer largely declining as supply and deliveries from manufacturers are expediated by the group. And in terms of used cars, the group took the decision to invest more and stock up used vehicles. And consequently, we saw a 12.7% increase in like-for-like -like units. And that's about just over 1,000 units overall. 
approximately 10 per sales outlet. Turning to the cash flow, we generated net cash flow from operating activities of 14.7 million. And you can see the impact that the investment in used car inventory had in terms of the cash outflow in respect of working capital within that operating cash flow. We saw a small free cash outflow in the period, 0.4 million. And in terms of allocation of that capital, we spent 5.1 million in terms of capital expenditure, freehold purchases, or on one-off capital projects such as the solar panel installations. In addition, 9.7 million has been returned to shareholders in the form of dividends or in share buybacks. Overall, excluding lease obligations, the group saw had a net debt position of 90.7 million. By far the biggest majority of that debt is 20-year mortgage money from BMW FS, which bears no covenants and is secured on the properties themselves in the group. The group also has a used vehicle stocking loan facility from Lombard. We increased that used vehicle stocking loan in terms of facility to 70 million on the acquisition of Helston, and I've very recently reduced that down to 50 million due to low utilization. And you can see here at the half year end, we've utilized 11.7 million of used vehicle stocking loans against that used vehicle stock value of 200 million. In terms of capital allocation, we still believe the balance between investment in growth in order to deliver on the group strategy and shareholder returns is vital. We continue to deliver growth, whilst clearly the major focus in the first half of this year has been on the integration of the Helston businesses, where we completed the acquisition in December last year. Fixed asset additions in the period were £11.7 million, but actually we previously advised a full-year net capex forecast of £38 million. And we actually have looked at that and reduced it by 10.2 million on that previous forecast down to 27.8. Of that, we've deferred 6 million of spend into next year. We saved 2 million on the rescoping of some significant plans in terms of some of our existing property portfolio. And we've offset 2.2 million of proceeds received from sale of surplus assets to date. We are expecting more money from those surplus assets, but not, hasn't been included in this net capex forecast that I'm presenting today. In terms of returns to shareholders, the board have approved an increase in the interim dividend by over 20%, still following our stated dividend policy. And we spent 5 million on the purchase of our own shares in the financial year to date. And we have a further authority to continue that program. Interestingly, since FY18, the group's actually now repurchased over 14% of its issued share capital through these programmes. My final slide, you remember I said we generated £2.2 million from the disposal of surplus property assets. They were disposed at above net book value. And we anticipate further proceeds of £7.3 million probably over the next nine months. And that is not included in the current net capex forecast. I won't include those till we actually get the money. The highest of those assets is land in Glasgow adjacent to our Nissan dealership, where we're expecting to receive £5.5 million. In addition to surplus property assets, we do look to our portfolio and look where we can actually make savings or changes to the benefit of the rest of the remaining group. Two such things happened in the period. We closed Moulton BMW and Mini and the Stroud Ford sales outlets which gave us a structural reduction in operating expenses and the vast majority of customers and colleagues have transferred to nearby York and Gloucester, augmenting the performance of those sites. I'll now pass back to Robert, who will cover off operational trends. Thank you very much, Carol. 
This is quite a busy slide. It goes through the vehicle volumes, both core and like for like, gross profit per unit by segment, the selling prices and margin percentages, and also market share. If we take the new car market first, you can clearly see in the market data from the SMMT and seen again this morning, higher supply levels coming through, especially actually in BEV, battery electric vehicle products. The demand is really in the fleet and motability segments. That's where the growth is coming. That reflects pent-up demand from post-pandemic periods when the manufacturers really prioritise the retail, higher margin channels. They're now backfilling fleet and motability. The BEV demand is really coming in fleet, uh, both due to ESG-related demand and tax breaks and the proliferation of salary sacrifice schemes, which effectively takes retail customers and pushes them through the corporate fleet channel. Retail demand overall is pretty stable, actually. You saw retail sales of new retail vehicles actually up in September, and the market is up. I would describe it broadly as stable. In terms of the group performance in the period to August, we took retail share, 4.6% market share now in the UK, largely driven by increased outlet numbers. Motability, as you can see, saw massive growth. We were up 78%, the market was up 65%, like for like. And we now hold 6.2% of the motability market. We are motability's largest customer with 36,500 customers. And this is really important for after sales because those customers get a service paid for for three years by the UK government. Margins remain strong, as you can see, over £2,000 per unit. Slight variation due to the increased motability mix, motability being lower margin than retail, but very strong performance overall. Fleet and van segments, excellent margin retention. Really pleased to see over £1,100 gross profit per unit, a record actually in terms of our delivery. The premium dealerships actually augmenting margins really quite nicely. We have avoided a low margin rental supply. Uh, we don't see that as a profitable channel. The market has actually been driven by that supply. So we didn't hit the market change numbers, but we were very happy not to hit that. Taking the used car market, there is some complexity around the used car market, and you all know some of this background, but clearly during the pandemic years and the post-pandemic years, new car markets have been off considerably due to production uh, capability problems. So there is now a structural supply constraint in the three to five-year-old cars, which clearly have impacted sales volumes. Uh, the whole sector has moved into older cars to try and get volume, because uh, that's where the product is. That product, uh, it takes longer to prepare for retail and costs more. And you can see some visible distress in the private arena as well as in the public arena. The higher APRs that we're seeing due to higher interest rates, you can pay almost you know, regularly 13.9% now in premium used cars. Combined with the higher sales prices are clearly creating affordability issues or at least giving people pause for thought. The average used car sales price in our group is now over £21,000 and prices remain 25% higher than they were in January 21. Combine the high price with the higher APR and you've clearly got much higher monthly payments. The demand in used cars is much stronger in the cheaper end than it is in the highly expensive end. The 0% events that Karen referred to, we went cold turkey by not holding these. Clearly we couldn't in this interest rate environment. That did reduce volume. You can see we're down 5.7%. But our margin was strong and strengthened. In fact, the margin in H1 was higher than the margin in H2, which is clearly pleasing. As Karen said, we did increase stock levels in H1. That was largely because 
we were seeing such delays in getting older cars through preparation that our volume of cars on the internet was down. So we pushed more stock through the pipeline. And indeed, that helped in September get a much better volume performance compared to last year than we have seen uh, in the previous six months. If we look at residuals, we've obviously got an underpinning of the structural shortage. That's not changing anytime soon. Electric vehicles have now stabilised. Uh, they're actually down 40% in value uh, year on year. They're now much more affordable. And indeed, when a EV subscription business went bust about three weeks ago, uh, the group stepped up and bought 600 used electric vehicles, which we think we'll make good money on. The weakness in residuals, the, the market is certainly normalising. So used car values are now going down, as indeed they probably should do because they use vehicles. Um, however, we're seeing more pressure in the higher end product, cars over six, seventy, eighty thousand pounds, which we think is due to demand rather than supply as those high APRs and high sales prices come in. It feels much more like normality. Our objective in used cars is the same as ever, is to grow used car volume, not go backwards whilst maintaining margin. And our new virtual analytics system certainly enables us to do that with a, a closer move to almost automatic pricing of used cars. Take after sales, which is almost universally positive picture again, and with real opportunity, we think, in the next months and years. The next slide actually talks specifically about technician resource, but the headline is that we have an increasingly positive picture with regards to the number of technicians we're employing, which should drive higher service sales going forward, albeit a slightly reduced margin. Overall gross profit will be up. Service like for like sales were up 5.7%. Parts actually grew revenue nearly 12% and at steady margins. One of the key highlights that has been a feature of the last couple of seasons, but has actually now accelerated, is the growth of the accident repair and smart repair segments. Accident repair centres have completely transformed their work mix and therefore their operating margins by moving from direct insurance relationship work into manufacturer approved work and indeed working on our own customers' cars. You can see a significant change in the gross margin as a consequence of that. Our smart repair business has more vans on the road, over 114 vans, I think now, and more coming on the road every day. And we think there's a new business to look into because our smart repair business, frankly, actually works on our own cars for used car preparation. And we've, ex we've basically taken out third parties from that. However, we think there's a business to actually cater for the retail needs of our two million customers. So we'll look to set that business up uh, as we go through the next few months and next year. Gross profit was up in every after sales channel, which is clearly good news. If we take technicians and this tells a story of the post-COVID period, we started in February 21 with 840 technicians in our service business. That actually dipped to 817. And we started to talk explicitly about the impact of that on after sales revenues. You can see that by February 23, we'd recovered to 843. But in the last six months, by the end of August, we got an extra 50 technicians. Now, bear in mind that a technician, after he's paid for himself, generates £115,000 of service and parts gross profit. And you can clearly times 50 by 115 and get to a large number of over 5 million. So this should power our growth in after sales, gross profit generation. And we're not going to stop there. We've done a lot of work in terms of shift patterns, uh, marketing our vacancies, uh, looking at fast tracking non-franchise technicians into the franchise world, uh, as well as taking pay action to make sure we are attractive. If we turn to two issues which I think need discussing, one is electrification, one is the agency model. Electrification, let's be very clear, is a government-imposed transition that is not being left to consumers to decide on the direction of travel. 
retail demand for electric vehicles, and it was highlighted again this morning explicitly by the SMMT in their announcement, is quite muted. That's going backwards. However, there's strong demand from fleets, including salary sacrifice schemes, for electric vehicles, and that's where the demand is going. There are no retail customer incentives, and let's be honest, the government's got no money, so we might not expect any of those soon. Rishi's recent announcement around moving the ban on petrol and diesel cars from 2030 to align it with the European Union's ban in 2035 seemed a very pragmatic decision. However, it is not really what is happening, because within days of that announcement, the zero emission vehicle mandate, and mandate is the interesting word, basically imposed heavy fines on manufacturers if they failed to get the right mix of battery electric new vehicle sales compared to their overall new vehicle sales. At the moment, there are about 16% of vehicle sales, car vehicle sales, new cars are battery electric vehicle. In 2024, that has to be 22%. And in 2030, it's 80%. So basically, there is an 80% ban on petrol and diesel vehicles rather than an outright ban. If you fail to hit that mix, every car over the mix that's petrol and diesel uh, gets a £15,000 fine, which is clearly a big number and is going to potentially create some turbulence in terms of you might see higher petrol and diesel new car prices, you might see lower supply of petrol and diesel uh, cars in order to hit the percentages, and it could very well provide a break on overall market growth. The manufacturers clearly are concerned. The final item on the right is the icing on the cake, really, which is the rules of origin Brexit deal, whereby if the manufacturer's mix of sales, so for example, of battery electric vehicles, don't include 60% content from Europe or UK, then the transfer of those cars between the UK and Europe actually ends up with a 10% tariff. And you have to question whoever came up with such a thing, because this just gifts market share potentially to Chinese manufacturers. The German government is on the pitch to try and overturn it. The British government clearly doesn't want it. It doesn't help the UK manufacturers any at all. Bearing in mind, 75% of battery production for the automotive industry is actually in China. This is quite a tall order when put together with the ZEV mandate. So there's going to be much manoeuvring and uh, we wait and see really what happens. There are two critical issues, apart from price, which are impacting the movement of the mass market to electrification. The first is the inadequate charging infrastructure and the fact that if car sales explode, then the infrastructure has to explode with it. And there's no signs of that happening. In fact, it was interesting to read that the motorway services group Moto have now put uh, security guards next to electric vehicle charging points to stop people from fighting over them, according to the papers in the weekend. And the second issue is probably insurance availability. It was interesting to read that John Lewis have stopped insuring electric vehicles and there is significant pressure in the insurance market around uh, electric vehicles. So it, the goals still, to my mind, look broadly unachievable. And I would expect post-general election and post-next general election, potentially some delays to that transition. We move to agency. Uh, this is simply where the manufacturer invoices the customer directly. The sales process remains pretty similar, if not identical to where it is today. It's just we don't invoice the customer, the manufacturer does. The reason for the introduction of this, I think, is relatively straightforward. Not every manufacturer going down this route, just a, a number. One is it costs more to produce a battery electric vehicle. And there is a theory that if you take out intra-brand competition, so a competition in Vauxhall between Lookers, Pendragon and ourselves, for example, then actually you can control margin more by fixing prices. You can only do that really in an agency model. And if you want to go online retailing, which in theory should be a thing, 
You also need fixed prices. So that's why people are going agency. Mercedes went in January. Volvo went mid-year. Volkswagen Skoda actually goes this month. It actually reduces our turnover, obviously. We get a handling fee for each sale. I think we've pretty well been through that before. When we're asked what's happening, uh, all really it's early days, nine months with Mercedes. Mercedes have clearly, if you look at the public stats, lost volume. Uh, whether that is a trouble to agency, I think it is debatable. Uh, we clearly have to wait and see. I think the board's view on it, to take a medium-term view, is that whether it's an agency or a traditional franchise model, there is little appetite in the world to see the demise of dealerships and physical footprints. In fact, it's impossible to see how that would work. So manufacturers will need to ensure, as they've always done, that those physical networks owned by retailers would need to be viable. And we think that means medium-term returns should remain attractive, which is a, clearly a key judgment. So looking at our strategy, we undertook a review of this in September and it holds good. Our primary objective is to grow through scale by investing in businesses with a return on a capital employed in excess of weight average cost of capital. Secondly, to use technology, primarily actually to increase productivity and drive out costs, but also to improve the customer journey. The third pillar on people, it is a people business at the end of the day, and we have to deliver our mission statement of an outstanding customer motoring experience through honesty and trust. And the only way to do that is to have stable, motivated colleagues. And we invest significantly in human capital around sales skills, customer service skills and leadership skills. The final pillar is ancillary businesses, which we've talked about in the past. And we do intend to develop those further to give us additional profits. So growth, let's just revisit the Halston acquisition. We're pleased with this acquisition. Uh, it's performing well and profitably. Uh, it's undergone quite a lot of change, complete rebranding, complete new systems, not a small task on 28 dealerships, but all done. We've built the Virtue brand, establishing partnerships with Extra Chiefs, Plymouth Argyle, Somerset County Cricket Club, and our brand awareness is certainly going up. Our two twin tasks now are to continue to install our culture within the business, uh, and we have monthly sessions with management on that, but also to put more resource into those businesses so we can operate at higher activity levels and generate more, more business. Talking of brand awareness, it's a little known fact, I think, that Bristol Street Motors is England's leading franchised automotive brand in England. Hasn't always been the case, but we've done a lot of work to drive that through motorsport, through sports sponsorships, etc. And it's certainly working. We are ahead of Arnold Clark and we're ahead of Evans Halshaw, who are the two biggest competitors that we face, particularly in volume used cars. Macklin Motors in Scotland is now a major established player. We are working hard on social media. Uh, put a lot of effort into this in order to get reach. Uh, we have 120,000 more followers than our nearest automotive rival with 485,000 followers. We take digitalization, which is really business as usual now. We've got 50 plus software and robotics engineers. Four projects to highlight Virtue Insight, which is the used car stock pricing system, which has an algorithm to give us values for purchasing and selling of cars. And it's a major win, I think, for the group. VPay is the self-developed system for giving deferred payments to service customers. We had it through a third party. We think we can implement that and take a significant cost saving. And that appears to be what's happening. Self-service checking was unusual. We used a third party to provide kiosks where customers can come in for a service, but they can check in at home. They can use a kiosk. I have a belief that a lot of service customers uh, want to come in, want to go out with a minimum of fuss, and these kiosks allow us to do that. In addition, they are helping drive additional sales 
because every time you use a key, I should get asked if you want your wiper blades uh, changed. The fourth element is a data and customer data platform, which has not had a massive impact on the business yet, but it is going to. It is now well established with our first user case implemented, which is streamlining email contact with customers post their service visit. And it's led to a significant increase in the efficiency of that and also the amount of personalization we can achieve. It will in time revolutionize customer personal marketing. This slide is just a summary of really where we're putting our focus operationally. We have to have an obsession with operational excellence in a low margin business. At the end of the day, we set out annually. These are the key areas we're going to focus on. There are three overriding elements. Have we got committed, stable teams to deliver to customers? Have we got good customer experience and customer retention? You can see the metrics. And have we got process consistency? And it's consistency that we strive for across the portfolio. Management variation leads to variable returns and profits. And that is a feature of motor retail. So we have to drive to get that consistency when we can see significant incremental gains. We actually have a virtue balance scorecard, which ranks every dealership on these measures with a composite score from one to 190. So every colleague knows where their dealership is performing. Right, finally, current trading and outlook. The good news is the board believe we're trading in line with current market expectations for the full year. September is the biggest trading month in H2, and we've got that now under our belt with a strong performance, which was pleasing. New car volumes clearly grew. You've seen that the market is up, but we did well in terms of new retail volumes and margins slowly normalizing, but we're good in the month. Used car volume trends were actually more positive than they have been in the reported period, which is good to know. However, we have seen a more normalized approach with regards to used vehicle pricing in the wholesale markets, whereas battery electric vehicles were the problem in the first half of the calendar. They've now stabilized, but we are seeing pressure on residuals on high-end uh, used cars, uh, think, uh, product above £70,000 and above. We're definitely seeing some weakness in customer demand in that area. We think we've got exciting prospects for after sales, particularly based on the technician numbers increasing and the success of the accident and smart repair. And I'm pleased to report we've got a further pipeline of bolt-on acquisitions, which is visible and which we're actively working on. So in summary, we're proud of the progress over the last 17 years to get to 4.5 billion turnover business. We're very well capitalized, which in a cyclical business and an uncertain world is very useful. We've got a stable energetic management when we aren't suffering from colds. And we may very well be the last scale PLC uh, focused on the UK in the sector, which is not something we envisaged in 2006, uh, but is not necessarily a bad thing. And the first question here, about five or six million of capital expenditure has been postponed into next year. Why was this? Um, a number of reasons. One of the biggest reasons, actually, is planning delays. The planning system is awful. I mean, most of them are working from home, if they're working at all. And we are finding massive delays in getting uh, projects through planning. And that's just delaying the system to be honest thank you so it's nothing to do with the uh, cash flow pressure or anything like that i don't think it's a bad thing no. to defer six million quid i mean i think if we can delay things a bit i don't think that's a bad thing but the bulk of it was planning but you know we do like to manage our cash flows and if we can postpone things we would why wouldn't we and the adjustments to adjusted earnings are clearly 
costs to shareholders and in particular share options granted are clear substitutes for salary and bonuses. What's gained by excluding them? That's what the analysts tell us to do. Yeah. Clarity. That's, that's what the analysts tell us to do. So that's what we... Why do non-GAAP numbers help, particularly when the adjustments are not substantive overall? And why does the interim report hide the real GAAP profit so far down? Um, well, I don't think we're hiding them. I mean, I think they're there, aren't they? I think you're quite capable of reading them. There's a question about Marshall's sold at a premium to the trading price and the current bidding for Lucas and Pendragon again at a premium. Virtu are trading at 72p versus analyst valuations at 115. It makes Virtu the only PLC of any scale left. Does the board have a strategy to make the share price less attractive to a predator? Less attractive. Um, no, we have a strategy, which I've outlined in that presentation, which we seek to execute. We have a belief in rational markets and that markets will ultimately value the company at the right intrinsic value. The board have a view on intrinsic value. We are, you know, we have a history of buying back shares because we think the share price is less than intrinsic value. And that is what we will do. And was there anything that you would have changed in the period in terms of what went well and what went badly? Well, we don't really look back on life like that because I think you've got to make decisions you see in front of you and then going back and looking at them saying, would you change the decision, I think is broadly a bad thing. I think there are some issues coming out of the pandemic which need tackling. I'll give you an example. I think sales teams in automotive retail, and I would include our company, in the mix have lost sales skill to actually sell cars, which for an automotive retailer that sounds not a great thing. And the answer is not a great thing. So coming out of the pandemic, there were more customers in the work cars. And therefore I think over the period we've lost the bite around objection handling. And I also think we've lost closing skills. And now we're faced with higher volumes new cars, used cars, we've got higher APRs. There will be tranches of our sales teams that have never had to objection handle our higher APRs because interest rates have been low for a long time. And we've got new powertrains where we have to come over, overcome objections around uh, charging, range, anxiety, all that sort of stuff. So I think we've got a massive job to do, twofold. One, train our people continually to improve their selling skills. And secondly, as the market's expanded in new cars, I suspect we haven't got enough resource to maximise the opportunity. So we will be and are recruiting more salespeople because the volumes are going to go up. And we're going to have to train them daily to make sure they can actually sell. Which I know sounds pretty basic, but I'm afraid that is where we are. And to be clear, I think that's not centrally training people. That's using our management team in the dealerships to coach daily. Yeah. So that's where our minds are. If you'd asked me six months ago, I would have said our biggest issue is technician sure. capacity. I think we're well down the road to sorting that one out. Yeah. But my worry at the moment is sales, firepower and skill. And obviously, higher interest rates are an issue. Um, how much impact do you think 
that's going to have for you? How much of a headache is it for you, both in terms of sales and in terms of your own debt cost? We've got 25% gearing. We've swapped out a chunk of the interest rate risk. And there's a good school of thought to say, actually, that interest rates are peaked. So I don't think we want to be doing large-scale M&A, putting a chunk more debt onto the balance sheet. And we've said in the medium term, we wouldn't want debt to go above one and a half times EBITDA. So I think we'll be conservative on that. In terms of its impact on uh, customers, it's not had as big an impact as I thought it might, I'm honest. Uh, but clearly, I think we, and hopefully, if interest rates are peaks, we'll see consumer interest rates coming down, but you don't know when that's going to be. I think it's at the higher end of, on the, if you think about a £12,000 Hyundai i10, why does that get bought? It gets bought because somebody's passed the driving test or, the, you know, there's something changed in their life and they need a car. And, and their other one might have broken down. They need a car. It's not really a discretionary purchase. They have to have one for work. Um, whereas, actually, a £120,000 SUV uh, is a broadly discretionary spend. So I just think we're seeing a little bit of weakness in that segment. And I think that, that could be interest rates. Uh, both in terms of the impact on customer discretionary spend and, and actually the cost of the vehicle itself. So I think that's the area and it's the impact on used vehicle residuals that that would uh, be pertinent. And what do you think your USP is against competitors in terms of customers, in terms of your market? Um, I would hope, though I, ex I would accept there would be inconsistency, mm -hmm. that if you arrived at one of our dealerships, you would be treated with respect, with a smile, and by people who, A, wanted to sell a car, B, had the skills to sell you a car, and three, wanted to treat you appropriately. Regarding sales of electric vehicles, how can you improve your salespeople's ability to sell, especially when many potential users can do, say, 95% of EV charging overnight at home? That wouldn't be the case going forward, but my guess is it's still an unfulfilled opportunity, especially overcoming the latest apparent negative feelings. Right. I think there's a lot to say. We can clearly improve the effectiveness of our sales teams in selling electric vehicles if A, they drive an electric vehicle themselves, so have experience of range, charging, et cetera. I think that's really quite important. Uh, for example, we have introduced our own salary sacrifice scheme to get as many colleagues as possible into electric vehicles. Um, I think training is clearly important. We are actually the only group in the UK that have signed up and got the EVA accreditation in every single one of our dealerships where we have auditors come in and test us on our electric vehicle accreditation. It's a government back scheme. So I think we're in the pound seats on that one. The assumption in the question is that there are lots and lots of people out there who could have an electric vehicle, but don't. And there is some truth in that, but there are also some inherent problems. If I look at the streets around where I live, there are detached houses with drives that you can power up, but there's quite a lot of terraced houses. In fact, in Tyneside, we have things called Tyneside Flats, where they look like terraced houses, but there's a dwelling on the bottom and a dwelling on the top. And I have no idea how you can do electric charging at home for those people. That is a mystery. And in addition, 
There is a school of thought that, well, people just commute to work. I commute 15 minutes. I commute back 15 minutes. I could use an electric vehicle very easily. My wife could definitely use an electric vehicle because she broadly goes within the region. However, if I want to go to a football match, and presume I want the same car to do my daily commute and go to a football match, my football team round trip is 245 miles. Now, I am getting an electric vehicle. It's got a proposed range of 388 miles, and I'm hoping I'm going to be able to get there and back on a charge. Because frankly, at, eight, at 7 o'clock on a Saturday night, I do not fancy charging up for 45 minutes somewhere. So I don't think it's a clear run, if I'm brutally honest. The range is getting better, so the situation is getting reduced. Uh, but there is reticence in the customer base in terms of mass adoption. And let's be brutally honest, the Prime Minister stood up a fortnight ago and told everybody they were leaving it to the customers, he wasn't going to force them in, and they got till 2035. Great, thank you very much. And that's the end of questions. Robert, do you have any closing remarks? No, I'd just like to thank everybody who's given their time. I know we've got a good, solid retail base of shareholders now. They're an important base. Hopefully things like this help in terms of the communication. I think it's an important medium, this, actually. And uh, just like to thank you very much for your support. PI World videos and podcasts are for general information and interest. They do not constitute any kind of recommendation or inducement to buy shares of any company. PI World is not offering any kind of financial advice and nothing in our material should be taken as such.